With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 332 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today our story is one that touches on one of the most shocking murders in the history of crime. The Moors murders. I don't like to use the word evil, but if it applies to anyone it surely must apply to Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. In the episode today, I examine just what happened to one person, David Smith, who against his will ended up playing a central role in this story. Okay, there's no adverts today, you'll be devastated to hear, so let's get straight on with setting some context with our guest the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was King of the Fluffers. <laughs> I don't know what you are thinking about. It was Ken Dodd with his single Tears. And at number three was the Rolling Stones with I Can't Get No Satisfaction. In the US, in the top spot were the Beatles with Yesterday. And in Australia, Normie Rowe had the top-selling single of the year with his song dedicated to the FA Cup. Cursera, Sarah. In the news this month, the post office tower opened in London. It was then the tallest building in England. British model Jean Shrimpton caused a sensation at Derby Day at the Melbourne races by wearing a white dress four inches above the knee. The Magic Roundabout made its debut on BBC One at 5.50pm. If you are of a similar age to me, mid-twenties, you will recall the music instantly. Corgi Toys introduced the all-time best-selling model car that was James Bond's Aston Martin DB5 from the film Goldfinger. And Prime Minister Howard Wilson was under significant pressure as African countries demanded that the United Kingdom use force to prevent Rhodesia from declaring unilateral independence. And finally, the mighty Leeds United somehow managed to lose to Liverpool in the FA Cup final. Leeds midfielder Albert Johansson became the first black player to play in an FA Cup final. So did you guess the month and year? It was October 1965. Today's story begins in Hattersley in the northwest of England, around 10 miles east of Manchester city centre. Boxer Ricky Hassan grew up in Hattersley, as did, who could forget, Shane Ward, who won the second series of The X Factor. And just metres away is Mottram, from where you recall in September 2012, drug dealer Dale Cregan made a hoax emergency call to the police, luring police constables 23-year-old Nicola Hughes and 32-year-old Fiona Bone by claiming there'd been an incident of criminal damage. When they arrived... Both officers were killed as Cregan fired 32 shots in 31 seconds at them, along with throwing a hand grenade at the two officers. An utterly shocking and cowardly act. Okay, so on with today's story. 
As the door shut behind 19-year-old David Smith, he had to make a conscious effort not to sprint the short distance home in the darkness. He was so shocked at what he had just witnessed. Moments later, once his front door was shut, he felt reassured by the normality of the greeting from his collie Bob and the sound of his wife Maureen filling the kettle. Normality, right now, was just what he needed. Sweating and shivering uncontrollably, he told his wife just what he'd seen that evening, but she didn't seem to grasp the enormity of what he was saying and kept asking about her sister and if she was okay. Exasperated, David replied, She's all right, but she's part of it. Didn't you hear me, girl? Myra's part of it. David told Maureen that he would head out to the phone box at daybreak when others were about, and not in the darkness as he was terrified that Myra Hindley and her boyfriend Ian Brady would see what he was doing calling the police, and then who knows how they may react. David, Maureen and Bob duly left the house early that day and David's 999 call was logged at 6.07am by the duty policeman at nearby Hyde Station. After telling the officers what had happened the night before, David was driven to Brady and Hinley's house where they lived with Hinley's grandma to see both Brady and Hinley handcuffed and being led away by officers. The terrible sight of the dead body was discovered upstairs, just where David had told officers that he and Brady had left it the night before. Brady was charged with murder that day, but Hindley was released and her parents picked her up from the police station to enjoy her last days of freedom before she too was arrested and charged with murder. David Smith was born in January 1948 and at just one, he was left by his natural mother. He was adopted by his dad's grandparents, where he felt safe and loved. But one evening when he was 11, his dad took him to live with him, and that is where he lived until he was 17. But David didn't receive the care needed from his dad. They physically fought on occasion. His dad drank too much, and money was very tight. David was also sexually abused by another visitor to the house. And it was at 11 that David first got into trouble with the authorities. He got into a fight with a friend. But then when one of his friend's brothers tried to help, David lost it and he attacked that boy with a knife, an action he immediately regretted. For this, he was put in front of magistrates on a charge of assault and wounding and put on probation. He was a troubled child, unable to control his anger. And soon afterwards, he was expelled from school for punching the headmaster. Not learning any lessons from this, David then got in a serious fight at his new school when he broke the fingers of another pupil with a cricket bat, leading to a stint in a youth detention centre. This is a terrifying place for any child today, but back then, violence was literally around every corner. David was a good-looking teenager, and on his release there were many girlfriends, but one who he met hanging around the street corners with a group of teenagers of his age near where they lived became special to him. Her name was Maureen Hindley. She was a couple of years older than David. Maureen too had experienced a difficult childhood. 
She was very close to her sister Myra, despite the fact that Myra lived with her grandma, whereas Maureen lived at home with their alcoholic father and their mother, who had a very torrid, violent relationship. But make no mistake, Myra was the boss in this family, and she sorted out any issues that her younger sister was having, either at home or elsewhere. In 1963, David left school and, unsurprisingly, he fell into making money through burglary and petty crime with the Taylor Street Gang. But he wasn't a great criminal, and he was soon caught. On the 8th of July 1963, he appeared in court, but was treated with some leniency and given just three years probation, whilst his pal was sent to prison. This was big news in the local area, But a week later, there was even bigger news. David's 16-year-old neighbour, Pauline Reed, suddenly vanished. David had a very soft spot for Pauline, who used to sit with David when he was waiting for his dad to come home and bring him tea and jam sandwiches. On the 12th of July, she had left home to attend a dance at a local social club, but she hadn't been seen since. David said the following about Pauline's mum, following the disappearance of her beautiful daughter. I saw Mrs Reed very often, walking up and down our street, looking left and right, so lost, so alone. A mother in deep, deep distress. And then one month later, 12-year-old John Kilbride, the eldest of seven children, also went missing. But despite all the efforts of the police, John, like Pauline Reed, could not be found. One evening shortly after this, Maureen told David that she was pregnant. Both were delighted. Despite suffering difficult starts in life, they were keen to build a stable family and they told their families their plans for the rest of their lives together, including an upcoming wedding, even though David was only 16 and Maureen was 18. But before they had the chance to get married, another child went missing in the local area. 12-year-old Keith Bennett. He had left home with his mum to join his siblings at his grandma's house. His mum helped him cross a busy road before going back home, but Keith never made it to his grandma's, where his brothers and sister were waiting for him. On that sunny evening, his route to his grandma's house took him past Westmoreland Street and past the house of Ian Brady, who at this time was dating Maureen's sister. Myra Hindley. David Smith married Maureen Hindley on Saturday the 15th of August 1964 at All Saints Registry Office in Manchester. Maureen was now seven months pregnant and on the night of the wedding they went home after a short reception and they hadn't been home long when Myra knocked to ask them to come round and spend time with her and Brady. David said, When we arrived, Ian was nothing like the person I'd seen on the street, all gangling limbs in his long coat with a snooty expression. He chilled out that night. The waistcoat and trousers with a stiff crease down the centre of each leg were still there, but his shirt collar was undone and he was welcoming. He looked like a cross between a nerd and a gangster. He told how Brady would squeeze past Myra with a fag hanging from the corner of his lip and give her an affectionate hug. Just an ordinary bloke having a great time, he said. 
The night of his wedding was the start of David's friendship with Brady, if that's the word. From this point on, the two couples would meet up every fortnight. We'd get fish and chips, play cards, drink and listen to music, he said. And as David's relationship with Brady grew, he also began to get on better with Myra, who before the wedding had warned him to look after her sister or else. David said, I felt very comfortable around her. The relationship between the two of us was nothing like it's been portrayed in books and dramas, reduced to filthy looks and constant sniping. We were all right. And life seemed to be on the up for the young couple, as Maureen soon gave birth to their daughter Angela. David managed to secure a new job, and the relationship with his dad improved considerably. After such a difficult childhood and teen years, life finally seemed to be getting better for David. Then on Boxing Day 1964, another young local child went missing, 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. She'd been at a fair with friends and they were walking away when she'd suddenly turned and ran back to the lights and music of the fairground. But she didn't make it home that night and now she was missing. David's wife Maureen one night discussed the case with her sister Myra and the large reward offered for information, saying her mother must think a lot of the child. Myra just laughed. The two couples often went to nearby Saddleworth Moor together to walk, drink and play cards. Brady always chose where they went. Maureen and David were very much the junior couple in this arrangement. David couldn't see the attraction of the moor as to him it was bleak and featureless. But after a number of drinks, Brady once told him, I live for this place, it owns my soul. On one occasion, the four went to the moor late at night when all were very drunk and as they sat on the blanket drinking more booze as the sisters chatted, Brady told David about the peace that this place brought to him. He cursed the maggots, as he called them, down in the city. And that evening, Brady put his arm around David's shoulders and in a poignant moment, David thought to himself that this must be what true friendship feels like. On the 25th of August 1965, the life that Maureen and David were building was shattered by the sudden death of their daughter Angela, aged just six months. It was just a normal day, the normal routine, but Angela didn't wake up from her afternoon nap and Maureen could not wake her. The couple, like all who have lost a child, were of course beyond devastated at what had happened to their most precious daughter. On the day of her funeral, as Angela lay in the parlour in her coffin, Myra and Brady arrived at David's house. Myra gave the grieving couple a bunch of flowers and a card saying, another little flower for God's garden. In all the time Myra and Brady had spent with Angela, neither had ever held her, kissed her or shown her any affection at all. But on seeing her little body there in the coffin, tears briefly filled Myra's eyes. And aware that David had seen this, Myra quickly told him that Brady must not be told of her display of emotion. When David went out for some air a few minutes later, Brady was sitting in the car and didn't react at all to David. There was no acknowledgement of the situation, no saying sorry for their terrible loss, 
he just sat with his eyes fixed straight ahead, smoking. Unable to return to their home filled with memories of their daughter, David and Maureen had been living with his granddad. But in July 1965, the couple moved to their new home in Hattersley. Now just a 100 yards or so away from Myra and Brady, the couple socialised more than before, although it was always Brady and Myra who dictated what they did and when. But even so, the relationship was a bit awkward. Myra told David that sometimes Ian did not want to be disturbed and they were either told to leave, not invited into the house, or asked to wait at a pub nearby. And then when the signal of the landing light flashing on and off, that meant they could come to the house. Brady had an established way of drawing someone into his world of depravity. He did this with David and also before that with Myra. He would typically recommend all sorts of literature to read and then move to more erotic, sadist texts, such as the Marquis de Sade, who writes about murder and sexual cruelty. The aim for Brady was to normalise it. One line from one of his novels, The Misfortunes of Virtue, states, If crime is seasoned by enjoyment, crime can become a pleasure. And one of the passages that Brady particularly liked was Dessard talking about murder, saying, Should murder be punished by murder? Undoubtedly not. In a word, murder is a horror, but a horror often necessary, never criminal and essential to tolerate. Above all, it should never be punished by murder. As well as this, Brady would often play David tapes of Hitler's speeches and then rant his racist hatred to him, especially after a few drinks. David was repulsed by it. But after the death of his daughter, there was a change in David. He was lost, he was vulnerable and looking for meaning. And it appears that as soon as Brady saw this vulnerability, he set about exploiting it. Nowadays, I guess we'd call this behaviour grooming. And as Brady felt that he had the trust and admiration of David, the next step was to see how far he could push him. Brady knew that money was tight, so he suggested that he, Myra and David rob a nearby bank. David spent a day monitoring the movements of people in and out of the bank. But when he presented this to Brady, Brady was utterly dismissive and showed no interest. But what he did ask David is that if he had gone into the bank with a gun and a big security guard had gone for him, what would he have done? David replied he would use blanks. But Brady was having none of it, saying in this situation he would have to kill. And shortly afterwards on a night in, when Maureen and Myra were in bed, Brady brought one of his own guns around and pointed it at David, telling him to look at the barrel and then pulled the trigger. There was no bullet in this part of the chamber, but Brady had made a point telling David, that's how easy it is, Dave. You just have to press the fucking trigger. And unbeknown to David, at this time Brady and Myra did debate whether he should be murdered, as Brady had seen a potential flaw in David's character which could affect their murderous plans. Brady was all for driving him out of Manchester and shooting him, but Myra managed to persuade him not to, as she did not want to cause any upset for her younger sister Maureen, 
But whatever test David had been set by Brady, he seems to have passed. As shortly afterwards, Brady took another devastating step in his plan, revealing to David that he'd killed before. He first started speaking about how there was no God, otherwise Angela wouldn't have died, nor would David's dog who had just been put down. It was all about persuading David that murder was okay, as life had so little meaning, it was cheap. And then came the moment it seemed he'd been leading up to for so long, when Brady told David, Listen to me, I've killed. I've done it. I know what it's like. You know what I get from it? Control. You're in control, and that is the biggest fucking high you'll ever have. You're in control. You can even control death. Do you fucking understand me? It's all a matter of control. Meanwhile, Maureen became pregnant with her second child, and the couple were excited again as they eagerly prepared for the birth. Wednesday the 6th of October 1965 was one of those beautiful and crisp sunny autumn days. At about 11.30pm a dishevelled Myra knocked on their door. Maureen and David were in bed. Myra said she had forgotten to speak to Maureen about seeing their mum at the weekend but it seemed really odd that she just turned up just for that. Myra asked David to walk her home as it was dark and he was asked to go in the house where Myra flicked the lights on the landing which he did, but what he saw that night would change his life forever. When he went into the living room when summoned by Myra, Brady was attacking a teenage boy with an axe, repeatedly saying, fucking cunt, dirty bastard. The poor boy was lying on his back, half on the settee before falling face first onto the floor. Brady kept attacking him with the axe, even when he stumbled under the table. Then Brady suddenly stopped and shouted, Get the fucking dogs away from the blood. Get the fucking things out of it. The boy was by now seriously injured as Brady walked towards him and strangled him as he rattled and gurgled until finally his body was lifeless. Brady then stood covered in blood and breathing heavily and said, That's it, the messiest one yet. Brady passed the axe to David, commenting, Feel the fucking weight of that. How did he take it? The conversation was interrupted by Myra's grandma, who was upstairs and wanted to know what all the noise was. And Myra coolly responded, saying, It's all right, Gran. I dropped something on my foot. Just go back to sleep. Walking back into the room, she ignored the dead boy on the floor, literally stepping over him and asking Brady if his ankle was okay. He said, Yeah, it's fine. I must have caught it, but I'm okay. Can you bring in the cleaning stuff? Brady put his hand into the wallet of the dead boy. It was Edward Evans, an apprentice at Associated Electrical Industries Limited in Trafford Park. Edward was just 17, and that night had been in the centre of Manchester to watch his team, Manchester United, playing a Finnish team in a bar. But as he hadn't confirmed the time, his friend wasn't there. So Edward hung around the city for a while before walking to the buffet bar at Central Station and it was there he met Brady who invited him back to the house in Hattersley which he told him he shared with his sister Myra for a drink. Myra and Brady got sheets and a rope and Brady and David secured the body and moved it to an upstairs bedroom ready to be moved the following day. They then cleared up all the human remains from the murder, 
before sitting down with tea and cigarettes, as if the most horrendous murder hadn't just taken place in a suburban house on the outskirts of Manchester. David was terrified at what he'd seen, and he was terrified that if he didn't act normally, something would befall him. David agreed to return to the house the following morning with Angela's pram to transport the body to the car before disposing of it on Saddleworth Moor. David Smith testified as a chief prosecution witness at the trial of Brady and Hindley, and he played a key role in stopping their killings and ensuring they both spent the rest of their lives in prison. Hindley died in 2002 and Brady 2017. Brady and Hindley tried to implicate a number of people, including David Smith in the murders. It was only in 1987 when Hindley finally admitted that David Smith had been telling the truth. These lies meant that David suffered considerable abuse and violence as some felt that he had to have been involved. Dean, he retaliated when he was attacked using a knife and he was jailed for three years. While in prison, Maureen left him for another man and his dad became terminally ill with cancer. He was released in 1972, and shortly afterwards David gave his dying dad a glass of milk, which also contained an overdose of barbiturates. David was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to two days in prison, but he was released immediately. In 1994, Smith and his second wife Mary moved to County Galway, where they ran a successful B&B, until his death from cancer in 2012 at the age of 64. And what about Maureen? She suffered terrible guilt and anguish at having given evidence against her sister Myra and her mum never forgave her for it. And many other people never forgave Maureen for being a Hindley. The day after her sister's conviction, for example, she was attacked in the lift of her apartment building when she was eight months pregnant. She did remarry and they had a daughter as well. But Maureen died in 1980 at the age of just 34, having suffered a hemorrhage. And even at her funeral, she didn't find peace. Patrick Kilbride, the father of Moore's victim, John Kilbride, was at the funeral service with a knife. He kept interrupting during the service and as the eulogies were being read, there was a blonde woman present who he wrongly assumed was Myra Hindley, and he lunged at her with the knife. He was restrained and led away. And Leslie Ann Downey's mum, Anne West, she also turned up at the funeral and also had to be restrained by police when attempting to attack the same woman. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a terrible story. In fact, no words that we can say here can quite do justice to the terrible crimes of Brady and Hindley. The overriding question I think with David Smith is why did Brady involve him? There have been so many words written and programmes made about just why David tried to involve David Smith in the terrible crimes that he and Hindley were carrying out when it was obviously such a risk to involve a third person. I wonder if you have a view on it. Just why, I guess, we'll never know. But to me, it just seems likely that Brady wanted to extend his reach of control. It was all about control. Much as, like you, I love true crime and I do love true crime. 
I've always struggled to read or watch anything about the crimes of Hindley and Brady, as they are so horrific. We all recognise the haunting face of young, innocent Keith Bennett and the other victims. And have you been to Saddleworth Moor before? I'm with David Smith. I don't like it there one little bit. I find it a really bleak and haunting spot. David later described the moor, the scene of such horror, as follows. Hell's garden, an abyss where devils play and souls can never rest. I hate the place of a passion. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. If you'd like to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. You'll be very, very welcome. And if you'd like to support the show, please come and join our community at Patreon. It's a great community. There's over 50 bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content and news. A huge thank you to the new members of this community this week. That's Victoria and Kim Jolly. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your support. Find us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. As always, you can find all the references that I've used in my podcasts on the podcast notes for this episode. But on this occasion, I have leaned heavily on one book in particular. That's Evil Relations, The Man Who Bore Witness Against the Moors Murderers. It was written by Carol Ann Lee and David Smith. Okay, so that's it for me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday... Please do take it easy, and despite all the others, it's always the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.